Yes, the hardest question is pronounce your name. It's Eichigel. Oh, like I- icicle. <laughs> so uh, every time I say it, people come up with different things. Ice sugar is the kids usually come up with, but icicle I find it a little cold. But yeah, we can go with that. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by WidgeML5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that WidgeML5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile WidgeML5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 58 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Rubelke. Hello. Ward Bell. Hello there. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. A uh, quick reminder, go check out AngularRemoteConf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Aishugel. I didn't ask how to say your last Don't name. Don't mess it up. Yone. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Aishugel. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Aishugel Yonet, and I'm a senior software engineer, and I work with this amazing organization called AnyCannons, which teaches uh, human trafficking survivors how to code. And I do work a lot with D3 and Angular. Awesome. I love D3. I've, I've used it on a couple of projects. It just does awesome stuff. Do you want to give a quick overview about what D3 is and what it can be used for? Uh, sure. So D3 stands for data-driven documents. So it allows you to bind the data to your uh, DOM elements and operate over your DOM elements using that data. So many people think of it as a visualization library, but it's actually a way of working with the DOM and there is no plug and play charts like Google charts. So you have to build everything from scratch and you have to define all of your charts, but it also enables you to create uh, something from scratch that is amazing looking and it's very flexible. Yeah. One other thing that I noticed when I was working with it was that on, say, one chart, I could select a segment of data, and then it would update all of the other charts to show just that segment of data, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, possibilities are endless. Yep. And it's also really, I mean, pulling in your data source is like the easiest part. The rest of it's, okay, how big do I want this? What colors do I want in it? How do I, you know, 
uh, make it look the way I want. I thought it was really awesome. And all of the options you have are just so powerful. Mm -hmm. So uh, with Dtree, you're basically working with HTML, CSS, and SVG, and uh, you can do anything that you want. And with the things that you're very familiar with, it only allows, I mean, gives you some methods to use along the way. Like, as you said, loading external data is very easy, and uh, it has a lot of uh, array manipulation methods as well. Can we back up a little bit? Because I'm, I'm really curious about the relationship between D3 and the company you work for and the people you're, you're working with. And I know you have a long and interesting background of, of combining computing with social interests. So I hope you don't mind. I'd love to go back because, like, for example, when last we talked, you actually got your start in San Quentin, didn't you? Teaching-wise? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't mean that you were locked up there. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been. Well, actually, I was teaching for Girl Develop It, Black Girls Code, and um, Women Who Code. And I've been running my own uh, Women Who Code meetups for the last two years. And along the way, um, Hack Reactor, which is a boot camp based in San Francisco, with the Last Mile organization, which works with the uh, San Quentin prison, uh, we decided to have a boot camp inside the prison. So, um, yeah, that gave me a great experience before I dive into any canon's work. And so the people that you're teaching, they know anything about computing or they're you're, you're giving them their first taste of it? <laughs> some of them. Well, I would say most of them. I mean, we definitely had some students who never used a mouse before because they've been there for a long time. So averages, I think... 13, 14, 15 years, something like that. So these are the people who are towards the end of their time in prison. So they will be out very soon. So we want to give them a chance to uh, survive out there. But we had a few engineers, mechanical engineer, I think one of them was a mechanical engineer. But on the other hand, no matter how much familiarity they had at the time, that was long, long time ago. So I find myself sometimes explaining what Google is, what YouTube is. Uh, never explain what Skype is, but it will be a surprise for them when they get out. <laughs> These are all surprises for me, too. So, uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, the technologies are moving so fast. So I, yes. I, I hear you. But they're highly, the, these folks are highly motivated because this is an opportunity to come out and actually find work. We hope, I think, that it's the computing trades are more receptive to people who who have had this kind of a background. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen any other group of people that I teach being that motivated. Uh, so we talked to around 300 people to select from uh, inside the prison, and only 20-something was selected to participate in this program. And they're there every morning, 6.30 in the morning, and then uh, they go into afternoon. and. Uh, they tell me, you know, I go back to my cell and like, if I haven't solved this problem, I kept thinking about it and uh, I can't wait to come back and solve it. It sounds like a, a tech pro. What about, um, and, and so the, that's that group. Now, the women that you're, you're, how do you meet the women that you're helping? You're teaching? Uh, yeah, so uh, that's one of the challenges that we have at Any Cannons that's uh, been really hard because there are some... Uh, housing around uh, Bay Area that gives a place to stay uh, to some of the survivors right after they were discovered, I would say. Uh -huh. But uh, we have a lot of security security issues. So 
in order for us to go in and meet those people, uh, we have to go through like three day workshop, full day workshop, and then all these security checks. Uh, so they're paying so much attention to, you know, keep them secure. But we have all these organizations that are willing to work with us. They are very excited about giving the survivors a chance to learn and have their own businesses. Right. And you're teaching these folks D3? Uh, no, no, not just D3. This is a, a whole program for teaching them any tech skill. Uh, this could be they might end up doing QA stuff and uh, mostly front-end engineer, engineering. And hopefully in the future, we will add some uh, mobile development as well to our curriculum. I see. So you're teaching them a wide range of, of, mm -hmm. sort of web development skills. Yes. Uh Great. Okay. So sorry for that bypass, but it's fascinating. No, it's, it's fascinating really what you interesting. Do. And I know that many of our, well, I won't speak for any of our listeners, but I can speak for myself in saying that, you know, there's part of me that's really looking for the, uh, these opportunities to do that kind of thing. So that's an inspiration. So with that, let's get back to your tech chops, which I know are quite good. And tell us then how D3 fits into what you're doing and what your life is. Mm-hmm. So uh, I uh, worked in uh, different places, creating analytic tools mostly. So everyone has uh, the data problem these days. So dashboards are useful for almost every company. So I've been creating a lot of dashboards and a lot of searching and filtering tools uh, using D3 and Angular together. So you and the D3 is for visualization of the data. So it's is it sort of classic graphs and pie charts, or are you doing very interestingly weird things? <laughs> the most very interestingly weird thing I would say I did on a professional environment is probably the maps because uh, maps are pretty interesting. Uh, but I did do other visualizations uh, using uh, TreeJS, which is the three D uh, visualization library as well. Tell us about the maps, but tell us about that other thing too. So the the maps thing would be like, how do I put pins on a map based on on data, or what what kind of mapping things are you doing with D three? So. Uh, D3 mostly works with SVG. So there are a few things that you can do. You can definitely uh, put a map and then put some pins on top. But also you are able to get any kind of uh, border data from, uh, uh, you know, open source government websites for cities or neighborhoods or the whole uh, world, if you like. Mm -hmm. And then you are able to render it the way you like it. And then uh, on top of it, you can make heat maps or anything you can imagine. So it's uh, definitely different than what Google Maps is doing. It's not the, the tiles most of the time. You're working with actual border data. There's a gallery of examples, and I just put the link into the chat room for the show notes, but you can get on there and you can kind of look. So there are a few of them in there with maps. So one of them is sort of a heat map. It's chloropleth, and so it's unemployment rates across the country at different rates and scales, and it shows you all of the different styling that you put in there and the actual D3 code that it takes to put it together. So that's one example where it breaks things down and shows you, you know, sort of by county or by area what those are. And there's another one that's uh, force-directed states. And, you know, if you grab one of the states and yank it around, then it does some SVG stuff, and that's kind of fun. But, you know, there are all kinds of things that you can do with it. And if you want some examples, I mean, there are all kinds of charts and bubble graphs and things that will give you an exa uh, ideas of what you can do with D3. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to continue to be naive. So I'm imagining then that if I'm writing an application 
maybe an Angular application. I might be using the Angular Angular application to sort of get the criteria for selecting some data. Then I would have it go get that data, bring it down, maybe massage it a little, and then I would use D3 to render it uh, locally in the browser. Is that is that approximately right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's how Angular and D3 come together. Is is that right? That is true. Yeah, one of the things that I liked about iShugal's uh, slides was that it showed how to create a really quick directive for a graph. And so mm-hmm. you can you can build your directives so that they wrap around the D3 API, and then you can actually stick that into your code, and then you can put the information in the, the way you want it and have it display the graph in the in the way that you need it to be displayed. Give us an example of a directive that, you know, simple, one that one could understand on mm-hmm. just by listening that would do just the kind of thing that was described there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to tell you a story, too. Oh, tell uh, We love stories. Story of uh, working with the designers on data visualizations. So um, I worked at this consulting company where uh, our designers would come up with these beautiful designs months in advance, and um, they would... Sh- of course, use some fake data to design their visualizations. So if we have data points that are vastly different than each other, we would have some edge cases that would look the actual graphs totally different than what the designer had in mind. So this was a common problem that we had all the time. So it made it really hard to go back and forward with the designers. So I think what... um, Angular directives are making our life very easy in, in a way is that we can work with the designers in a much better way. So I create these directives. So I have my own tags for the directives, which is like, let's say, bar charts or uh, line chart. Then any designer could take that and then apply the data to it use very declaratively using the HTML attributes. And then can see it for themselves, like how it looks and can do uh, necessary adjustments. So the part that I love about using uh, directives with D3 is that I can define every graph in a separate directive, bar graph in one, line graph in another one, map in another one. And then anyone can use it anywhere in their application. That way I'm creating a new dictionary of graphs and making it easy to use. So then you just tell the designer... If they're a designer that's actually writing HTML, just put a bar graph tag in here with these attributes and it'll just magically work. Yes. And then they can see and they can bind different kinds of data, which will be in my controller and see if that works for that particular graph. In a way, it allows you to have your own prototyping tool. That's really slick. Mm Mm-hmm. So is there a convenient collection of these directives somewhere that I could just pull into a project if I don't want to write them for myself? Great question. (laughs) So uh, there's one uh, good uh, open source project that's uh, called Angular MVD tree. So it has a bunch of graphs from some line graphs and to par charts and stuff. And it is really uh, cool. But still, it's limited. So um, you can start from there, and then when you need it, you can add more yourself. And actually, I've learned a lot from reading that code as well, and I was actually inspired by it. So it also allows you to declaratively uh, decide on the color scheme or the data or what have you. So that's the way I 
like to create my directives myself too. So the designer's role is to figure out the page and decide, okay, I want a bar graph here and a, ch- and a chart there. Or like if you push this button, it switches from bar graph to chart, pie chart or that kind of thing. And also to provide certain, they have certain flexibility and styling by virtue of passing attributes to these uh, exactly. widgets. Uh-huh. Yes, true. Then you as a directive developer are actually coming up with these new tags, right? These new semantic tags representing different uh, thoughts. And you're designing those or is that Exactly. Right? And I'm giving all these options. I'm able to give all these options of attributes, which then I can take on my directive and use it. And I can also give like default values. And it's very easy to do with the directives. And I love that about working with Angular. Ah, and so then you're so you're sort of having your conversation with the designer, and they say, "Boy, I wish there was uh, this, uh, you know, visualization that was like this with these options." I should go. Can you do that for me? And you say, "Sure, I'll just modify the directive to pass the right stuff through to D3." Is that how exactly. the conversation goes? That's true. And uh, for the next project, I have that visualization already. It's ready to go, and I can just uh, use that as well. Now, do you tend to create very semantically specific kinds of visualizations? Like instead of just saying pie chart, it's unemployment pie chart, that kind of thing? Or is it more each time piecing things that are more general purpose? Uh, So what I like to do is uh, create uh, general purpose charts, and then I can uh, use that for any projects that I like. So I won't repeat myself. So one other really cool thing that uh, you can do with Angular is also give some accessor functions to your attributes on your HTML so that you can define those functions in your controller. So no matter what the structure of the data is, you are still free to use the same directives the way that you use in any simple data structure. But the way you uh, access to the particular data points in that particular data structure is through the accessor functions, which you define in your controller. Does that make sense? Uh, is it the controller in the director or is it the controller outside of the directive? I'm, I'm kind of... It doesn't have to be inside. I mean, you can definitely have outside of it. And I usually do have outside of it. So like the view model, it's binding. There's some, there's some kind of binding to the view model that is driving the outer HTML that has your little component in it. And that, that's how it communicates. Like the outside view model is the thing that's responsible for getting the data and stuff like that. And then it makes that available through exposing a property, which then on the views HTML, you bind to one of the properties of your widget. Your, exactly. Your, yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's kind of hard to draw these things in the air orally. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I think I'm getting the scheme. Great. Yeah, that works. I think we got a pretty good foot bone connects to the leg bone connects to the hip bone. Right. That's my, that was my thought. <laughs> So I'm looking at a plunk right now, and I linked it in uh, so we could probably put in the show notes, but it's pretty neat. So it has a chart that you're actually doing an ng repeat. Mm-hmm. And so just by actually declaring your options in the controller, you have basically now basically the configuration is actually outside of the directive, and then you're passing it in. But then you're also generating just this random data set, which is just a basic JavaScript function. And so, you know, the code actually reads really nice in the HTML because you're just saying, you know, take the data in this data set, loop over it, and then just go ahead and instantiate this D3 directive with this options. And then I could just play with the options as much as I want 
to basically mix to taste. And so it's just reads like a regular Angular wrap, which is, is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. How beautiful is that? It's gorgeous. <laughs> All kinds of shapes and stuff. Yeah. Very colorful too. So uh, I have a friend that was looking for a good graphing library and I turned him on to D3. What other uses do you see for something like this as far as you know, people saying, I need to do X or I have a problem visualizing Y? So D3 sounds like a good option. So anything that you are doing like basic stuff, like the bar charts and line graph, it's very easy to find some tools like the uh, Google charts and uh, MVD3 is uh, great and easier to use. But anything else that you want to do uh, more specific and uh, more interesting will need to start from scratch with D3. So I'm uh, pasting a great article I recently found. It's explaining the machine learning uh, algorithms. And I can't read the uh, article myself because the visualizations are so beautiful. I get uh, stuck at looking at them. So I don't know if you can see it, but while you're reading through the article, while you're scrolling down, a visualization on uh, the side of it is happening while you're doing it. And it's such a great uh, storytelling, I would say. I do have to say that uh, that's a big thing that I think we often forget in our code as we look at the data and then we're saying these data represent this thing. And so I want to communicate it well. But in articles like this where you have uh, these visualizations that are beautiful and communicate so clearly what you're looking at, the thing that's interesting is that they tell a story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're saying, look, these pieces, you know, these pieces of data do this and then they do that. And it's more than just an illustration of the data, but it actually communicates the points as you step through it and gives you this, like I said, this story, this narrative. You know, we, we took this data and then we applied these uh thought processes to it. And then, you know, we sorted it these other ways. And then we added these algorithms to it. And all I can say is, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I, like I'm writing too many to do apps. (laughs) This is just this is embarrassing. Some of this stuff would just blow your mind watching it. And it's all being rendered in real time in the browser. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I just wouldn't have believed you could do this. Yeah. One of the applications that I've done this for is building dashboards for businesses, especially if they're doing like lean startup, where they have a couple of uh, metrics that they're measuring as they do experiments to see whether or not they're paying off. And by having that there and having time data and cohort data and things like that, it tells them that story. So it's these groups of people that signed up at different times or overall users, they're liking this and they're not liking that and they're clicking this and they're um, they're using the app this way. And so you get kind of this overall narrative again of how people are using the application, which is very valuable to those businesses. Our experiment is going this way and over time it seems to mature this way. I mean, that's the real power of these different visualizations is that it puts into terms that aren't just numbers, but it gives you an intuitive feel as things trend upward or downward or group together, how different data or how different users in this case behave. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> so I'll never, I, I've, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should just give up my job. 
<laughs> so what's the most mind-blowing thing that you've seen or done with D3? Unfortunately, I haven't done anything mind-blowing. I think uh, there are so many mind-blowing things out there. I use D3 doing work stuff most of the time. So the data itself was challenging, and the challenge was uh, to find a meaningful way of visualizing things, but the visualizations itself weren't that challenging. But I was put to shame also at the San Quentin prison recently. So their D3 sprint, the uh, time period that they learned D3, they were also visualizing some uh, sorting algorithms like merge sort, bubble sort, and all of them. And one of the students there did all of it at once and then went ahead and started visualizing the prison data because that's the only data that he has access to. And uh, I was so embarrassed because it was so beautiful, uh, so nice. And I was super impressed with what they did. All you can do is applaud it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True. Y- you taught it real well. That's, <laughs> that's what that means. That's what that means. And that, it also means that that person, having discovered that for him or herself, has confidence to go out into the world. They can wow somebody else. And that's rewarding. So what's the... Um, All right. You told us all, you know, we're sitting here glassy eyed in amazement. (laughs) What's the there's got to be something wrong in here. What's this? Where's this? Where's the fish that stinks? What's wrong? Anyone uh, want to answer this question for me? I think there's a. Yeah. Thank you. It's It's really hard hard to learn. (laughs) There's Um, a lot there. Is it? Because I'm looking at this thing and I'm saying, wow, I should be able to do this. I'm looking at this amazing stuff as the page scrolls. <laughs> and I, I say, ah. yeah. I, I can tell you that uh, a lot of times for the bar charts or graph charts, I'll go look at one of their examples and I'll just copy and paste the code. And then I'll start fiddling with it to get it what I, where I want. But there's a lot in there. There are a lot of capabilities in there. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the learning curve, but... Depending on what your use case is, you may only need one little feature. And, and I didn't find that those were necessarily too tricky to pick up. Mm-hmm. True. So uh, there are a few uh, basic concepts that you need to understand. One of them is the selections in with D3. So basically, each time you're selecting some DOM elements and you're doing some operations over that DOM elements, and then you're returning that selection back. And sometimes you add to that selection, and that's when things get a little bit confusing. People tend to think they have a different kind of selection when they have appended some data to this new selection that they're operating on. So I feel like so many people uh, get confused there and give up there. Once you get the selection part clear, uh, I think the rest of it is just looking at the documentation and finding the um, useful methods that you need to use. And some of them are like for creating axes or manipulating your data, or they have some layouts as well for, for example, tree graphs and things like that. Uh, And I think that part is much easier to figure out once you get over the selection part. But I feel like people don't realize that they're getting hang up on the selection part and they think that they know what they're operating on. And that's where things get really confusing. Is it hard to debug? Uh, <laughs> to be able to debug, though, you still have to realize that you're operating on the selection, right? And so many people just assume that they have the right selection and they don't think about just constantly logging that selection and see what they're operating on. And um, other than that, it's just JavaScript and uh, you have all the tools that you need in your console. 
That's a great tip. I always just inspected it visually and then try to make it look better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's so much fun, but it takes time. I mean, you have to define every single thing. I mean, it's great that you have an axis function that defines, I mean, you can give scales and stuff like that and then define it. But once your data changes, you have to actually change the formatting of your ticks and stuff like that. So everything is a manual thing. So you actually have to think through the problem and it takes time. So I'm looking at this wonder page and there are all these clever animations. Does D3 have a built-in animation library? Uh, yes. So it has some transition methods. So basically you define before transition and after transition, and then uh, you can define delays and durations and everything else. And it's really cool. So um, the D3 animations don't work very well with React as far as I know, but it works great with Angular and there's no problem with that. And that was one of the reasons that I chose to work with Angular over and over. I mean, there's some, I'm looking at the wonder page and there's just some amazing things with dots moving up and down. <laughs> Do you know how they're doing that? So it's basic SVG transitions. So you're defining where it should be before. And depending on your new data, you define a different place, for example, go from this data point to the second data point. Uh, so you have access to the data and you are able to define those functions that will define the second uh, upcoming placement of your dots. And you're able to move them with like group elements using the regular SVG uh, element methods. It's pretty easy, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> the Is transition that... part, yes. Yeah, because it's uh, pretty stunning to look at. What am I looking at in a learning curve here? If I wanted to pick this up, what should I realistically expect? Mm -hmm. And where do I go? Do I come to you? <laughs> so um, there are really cool um, resources out there. So Lucas mentioned the 150-page Mike Bossack documentation, and it's really hard to read those things. But uh, there are really cool videos uh, about the basics. Tonight, we will be recording a D3 meetup at SFHTML5, and it will be available online. And... Um, in the Bay Area, there is a Bay Area D3 meetup group, and they do have a YouTube page where uh, you can watch their videos, and they do go over the basics all the time. And start playing with it, and I'll be here to answer any of your questions. More. <laughs> I'm so lucky to live in the Bay Area. <laughs> yes, we are all lucky. All right, anything else we should cover before we do picks? Well, there's the obligatory question. Of, no, I'm not even going to ask whether you thought at all about D3 intersecting Angular 2 or even heard anything about it. But I just did ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually my talk at Angular U and NG Vegas. Um, there's no recording at Angular U, but uh, it's basically the same thing. So the way I was thinking about it with Angular 1 is creating directives and working with controllers and the view. And it totally applies to Angular 2, right? Uh, and it kind of makes it even clearer to have components. So you see a fairly straightforward transition from the kinds of directives that you've been writing for Angular 1 to Angular 2 components. I do. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, we do talk about it. on. There's a video about it on NG Vegas uh, with Patrick and I did. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think mm -hmm. I even remember that one. We should make sure we include that link for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Wow. All right. Mind blown. Time for picks. <laughs> All Thank right. You. Let's do picks. Lucas, do you have some picks for us? 
I have two picks. The first pick is I've really been enjoying uh, Starbucks uh, Mango Black Tea Lemonade. I've actually been cutting out energy drinks, carbonated energy drinks out of my diet. This has filled a wonderful hole in my soul where Red Bull <laughs> once lived. And my next pick is actually a book that I bought for my son, and it's called Rosie Revere, Engineer, and it's by Andrea Beatty, I believe. And uh, it's just a really clever kid's book, but it's about this girl who is an engineer, uh, but she's kind of afraid. And so there's kind of a, a life lesson in there. And uh, it's pretty cool. I also recommend the companion book called Iggy Peck Architect. They are fantastic. All right. Ward, what are your picks? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I got a pass this week. It's been, a, uh, it's been a rough week. Yeah, he was looking at those... Uh animated charts and mind went blank <laughs> mind mind went blank i know how that goes sometimes i'm just going to do a quick shout out for angular remote conf if you want a discount you can get it it's uh adventure or adventures i had some confusion over that for 25 percent off and prices just went up because early bird ended yesterday as we record this but you can still get tickets you can also get tickets for your users group so if you have a place for everybody to get together and watch, it'll be the 24th through the 26th of September from 12 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I get that that's during the workday, but it seemed like most people preferred it that way. So uh, I'll shout that out. I've also got, kind of got this guilty pleasure. I've been watching Orphan Black. I've watched all of Season 1 and a few of episodes of Season 2, and it's great. So, yeah, it's a BBC America show, which means that it's BBC seasons instead of American seasons. So each season's like 10 episodes long. Pretty intense show, but a lot of fun. And finally, I'm also going to shout out another thing that I've been doing lately. Um, I've pulled together co-working Thursdays. So if you work from home or work remotely, we just meet at the local cafe. Usually there are between three and six people there right now. We've been doing it for about two months. But it's been a really great way to just get together and interact with people who work from home and don't get a lot of chances to interact with other folks who are professionals like them. So um, if you're how, looking how at... How does that work, Chuck? How, explain how that works. So I set like, up a... Because, in other words, you're doing this in Utah, and I, but yeah. I'm in the Bay Area. What, what, what is it in general? So I set up a meetup group, and then I send an email. Actually, one of the other guys sends an email out to the users group. So he sends it to the local Ruby group, JavaScript group, and Linux group, and I'm looking at reaching out to the like the Python group and the Go group and the Angular group and stuff like that. But anyway, so what we do is we show up. We're just there from 10 to 4, uh, so we just grab a table at the restaurant, and we spend the time alternating between chatting with each other and getting work done. And, and so, eating delicious food, just admit and, it. Yes. That sounds great, and and, and this is, so it's just totally informing. You just say, "Hey, you know, yeah, we're getting together, and if we're you, getting together, and people show whoever yep. shows shows." Yeah, because I mean, I work from home, and I get some social interaction from doing the podcast. You know, I talk to you guys, and I talk to the folks over on the other shows. But it's nice to get some FaceTime with real people, you know. And you're real people, but I don't see you face to face, and even over the webcam, it's just not the same. Well, I love that idea because more and more of us are working remotely and want to be able to yep. have that social interaction. And it also sounds like a great way to meet, uh, to sort of break the boundary, the bubble of your technology that you're mm -hmm. currently working in. Yeah, so. so we have a couple of Rails developers that come. 
we have a Node.js developer that shows, and he's doing Node and Ember, I think. And then, you know, some of the other developers are doing various things. We also have a construction project manager that shows up every Thursday that found the group on meetup.com. And she just, you know, she wants that kind of interaction too. And uh, so it's just a really convenient way for her to show up and meet people, even though she's not a high tech person. How do you title this meetup so that people recognize it as something they might want to come to? We just call it Coworking Thursdays, and people know we're there every Thursday. Nice. So that's that's just an idea that came out that I I really liked. Um, It came out of an episode of Freelancer Show where we talked to Alex Hillman about coworking spaces. And, uh, yeah, I basically asked him, what do I do if I don't know if I have enough people to open a coworking space? And he threw that idea out there, and I... I love it because there's almost literally nothing I have to do to make it go ahead. I just have to let people know every week that they can still come and hang out. So, And the price of entry is, unlike a co-working site where you're, you're, you're signing yeah. up for a membership and, and so it's a financial commitment, this is, yep. this, this is free form. Yeah, nice. Yep. And uh, we do it at Paradise Bakery, which is owned by Panera Bread, if they have those where you're at. And so we just get one of the long tables that seats like eight people. And usually there are three of us that bring power strips. And so there's plenty of power for everybody and it just works out nicely. Great tip. So anyway, uh, that's my pick. I should go. What's your, what are your picks? So um, for a newsletter, dashing D3JS is uh, where I get most of my news. And it's uh, such a great resource and it delivers to your uh, inbox. And I love it. I strongly recommend it. And uh, I was inspired by your <laughs> uh, TV series. And the Blatchley Circle is uh, one of my favorite recently. It is about the story in the Second World War at the Blatchley Park, ladies solving some code. So it's pretty fun. They were the computers of the day. Yes, they were known exactly. as computers. They were human beings. Computers were humans first. Yeah. It's a great show. All right. Well, thank you for coming. This has been really fun. If people want to follow up uh, with Annie's Cannons or with you or with D3 or anything that you're working with or on, what do they do? You can go to anniecannons.com to get more information and uh, to see how you can contribute too. We're accepting uh, hardware donations at the moment. If your company is getting rid of your old computers, just let us know. And uh, Uber graciously donated their space. We will have a classroom and an office space at Uber, uh, but we do need some uh, computers to work on. And you can tweet at me at Yonets. I'll put the link down. And I will also be teaching a full day D3 workshop uh, next month, early next month, and I will give you 20% off for that and include it on the links. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for sharing my passion for D3. Oh, you're welcome. I love it. I probably talk too much. Should I let you talk more? But No. No, I felt I did. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 